This is our sort of last official um, NYA uh, for the year. And what a way to end it with the topic of hell. But remember, like, we're still going to have summer events. We're still going to get together. There's still float fest. So there's still things going on that you can come to, that you can invite your friends to. So please remember that. We'll post it on social media, all the dates, all the events, locations, times, like all those things, okay? On the topic of hell, look, it's a, it's a difficult thing, but it's a thing that we, are, especially as Christians or those who call themselves Christians, need to deal with, to face. Because the world around you does not like the idea of it. But just because we don't like the idea of it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. So part of my job here tonight is to equip, inform, but also encourage, even on the topic of hell. And why it's actually more freeing than you think. Okay? I'll start off with a diagram, it should be up there, but it's, um, it comes from the idea of a, an actual story, a poem. It's called Dante's Inferno. It was written by Dante himself. Um, it was a story about him traveling through hell. It was written in the 14th century, and he, in, in, with his upbringing, with his sort of Catholic upbringing as well, in his understanding of culture of the time, of religion, and what the popes had taught him at the time, he wrote this story. And this is not the picture he came up with, but this was the best picture I could find online that best describes Dante's Inferno. So in Dante's Inferno, he said there are nine circles of hell. The reason why this is important, what you need to know about, because a lot of historians today will still refer to this. Because their challenge is, if this is what you think hell is, well, this is ridiculous. But here are the nine circles of hell. The first, from the top going all the way down, the first is what Dante, as he traveled through hell, called limbo. Sort of the idea of purgatory, the place where you sit and you wait, okay? For those who never knew Jesus, you have this time here in hell. And there might be a chance for you to get out somehow. The second level then is lust from sexual to everything else. If that was your sort of your driving force, if that was your idol, if that was your God, that's where you'd be. That's circle number two. Then there's the third one, gluttony. Easy to describe if you're overindulged, especially in food and drink, then you'd be in the third level of hell. Then the fourth is greed, obviously with money and everything else. The fifth is anger. So you go from greed to anger. And so this is Dante's version of hell and how he thinks it's progressively getting worse. Six, he wrote in his story as he travels through hell is heresy of his idea of the rejection of religion. In the story, he even meets one of the popes who he found to be a heretic. So in his story, one of the popes, the official popes is in hell, the sixth level of hell. Number seven is violence within hell. But yet, if you see on the seventh one, it's a little bit sort of deeper not because it's narrow, because for him in violence, there are three, sort of three circles or 
three sub-circles within the realm of the hell of violence. The first one is the outer, the outer ring or the outer circle. And that first one is the violence against people and property. Then the middle one is violence against self. So suicide, if you, you, know, you committed suicide, that's where you land up. And then you've got the inner rings of pretty much the, the last level, which is violence against God and nature. He would determine that and say that that was sort of like blasphemy. So different types of violence puts you in different places. Number eight was fraud. So that was politicians who would constantly lie to you. Most of us in the room say, yeah, he's got that one right. You got astrologers. The last one, then he would put like false prophets. Number nine, he puts treachery, so traitors. Traitors of government, of state, of church. He even, he even describes a story within Dante's Inferno of those if, you were a, if, if I invited you over to my house, he describes an actual situation of I'm inviting you over to my house and I kill you at my house. There's treachery of that betraying the guests. You, you fooled them into your house. You've made them feel comfortable and you poisoned them with food. Like eating pierogies, I mean steamed pierogies. I don't know, I, I had a steamed pierogi, believe it. It's a real thing. But in treachery, he even includes in his part of hell on treachery as Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. The number 10. After that, all that is done, you get to the center part of hell, like the, the very place where it, that's, that's sort of for all eternity. And that is what he had called the center of hell. And that's where Satan, he describes as a three-headed monster or beast eating his subjects. But when he's there, when, when, when Dante is there and he views um, Satan eating these subjects uh, three at a time, one of those subjects ha- actually happens to be Judas in this story. And when I look, look, if this was true, most of, us, most of us would want to avoid hell at all costs, would we not? Why? Because this place doesn't seem good, doesn't seem fair, it seems torturous, you're getting eaten by a beast. You're concerned about wh- where you would rank, where you would end up, and you're not even sure, you know, which is the worst of your sins, and where does it lead you? And the truth is, even with Dante's Inferno, you and I know, or we should know, in regards to heaven, hell, God, Jesus, church, all these things, we know that fear is not a good motivator. But part of this story, part of the, the time in the, within the 14th century, between the middle evil ages, but even as, as if within, within 1990 to the early 2000s, fear was the way to drive people to avoid hell. That's why there was terminology, especially during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, of the 20th century, where we say, you know, preachers would come up with this idea of fire and brimstone, or terminology like turn or burn. The point was to, to scare you to heaven. But fear is not a good 
motivator for you or me. But hell is not the place where Satan rules, but is where Satan is punished. There's a difference. Most have taught us that this is the place where Satan rules forever. He's the king of this kingdom, whatever this kingdom is. No. It's not the place where Satan rules. It's the place where Satan is punished. Look, hell seems to be the place where most Christians and non-Christians are sort of most fascinated with, but also most repulsed by. Most would actually reject Christianity just on the point or on the idea of hell. They might be able to accept everything else. The death of Jesus, okay, maybe. Resurrection, oh, that's really tough. In this era of science, love, of course we accept love. Forgiveness, of course we accept forgiveness. God's grace, of course we accept God's grace, but hell, that's, that's the one. Look, C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote you know, um, Chronicles of Narnia, he once wrote uh, about hell in his book, The Problem of Pain. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. So in part of C.S. Lewis's thought, one of his challenges is, you know, look, is hell just this old idea? Is it something that someone created in the past? And now for us in this sort of new era with more science and knowledge and internet, are we, are we more removed from that now? Are we too intelligent for medieval thought? See, C.S. Lewis attacks this in his book, The Abolition of Man, and points out that humanity in medieval times from about, you know, the 11th century all the way to about the 15th, 16th century, the people in those medieval times had saw the world quite differently to you and I. And he explains it this way. He uses interesting terminology. But he's saying in medieval times, he describes that times as the magic times in his book. He calls it the magic sort of era. He uses that term not in the idea of magic, the way we think of magic as you know, a guy in a, in a top hat and a cape pulling out, you know what I mean? A rabbit out of hat. That's not his idea of magic. His idea of magic within, around the 15th century, from a little bit before and after was, it was how the people within the medieval times interacted with the world. And how do they interact with the world? And he goes into describe it in his book. And his book pretty much says this. He goes, every single individual in the medieval times saw every single decision that they make, every thought, every single thought, good or bad, had an impact on the universe. Not this idea of a spiritual you know, universe out there in, the, in, 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 in a universe you can't see. But the medieval times saw that every time you and I made a decision, that we were all somehow tied together in that decision. If I did good, it was good for all of us. If I did bad, it was bad for all of us. 
And so the goal during medieval times was the goal for humanity was to learn and to develop their character, their humility, their compassion, their love, their courage. Then we all win together. Just like for, you know, those medieval times when they have to, you know, put on armor and go to the, join the army and fight in the front lines. It wasn't an individual's decision. It was a sort of this bigger collective decision to protect the nation, to protect those at home, to protect the country. It was that idea. And when those things sort of develop, then he's saying during medieval times, all prosper. But then in his book, he then talks about then there's a shift. Once those medieval times sort of moved, when we moved away from that, the second era was the era of science. During Lewis's time, science, he lived about 1950, and during Lewis's time, science changed all this. He was saying that the, 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 that the world was no longer a magical place anymore. Science came in and made it more of a natural place. It's, it was a place that you could naturally describe and physically touch. That there was, no, there was no magic to it anymore. We were no longer sort of like connected, you and I. There was no impact from the everyday decisions and the universe. Science had disregarded that now. That book was written many, many years ago. Now you can add sort of a third layer to that. So you've got magic, you've got science, and today in our time, I would add in the third top heading as the individual. Today is about you and you alone. Nothing else. Nothing else matters. You get to determine what's right and wrong. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter that anyone else thinks you're wrong. And if they're wrong, they're hateful. Or if they think you're wrong, then they're hateful. And not even science today, not even science can tell you that there are only two genders in the universe. So disregard science if you didn't know, they just released in Europe that there are 52 genders now that they're teaching in school, 52. So now you as an individual are celebrated above all creation. And so that's where we are today. So what's it like now, you know, sort of hell in the here and now? Especially for us in, in our individualized society to now us here in the West, here in Canada, we don't like the idea of hell because of what? Because of what it represents. What does it represent? Most people on the street will say hell represents judgment and punishment. That's what it represents. And no one really, truly deserves that. But that's the idea of the West. What if we asked other people? If I were to ask my mum and dad their idea of hell, you know what? It wouldn't bother them, coming from the East. 
For those who don't know my parents, my parents were born and raised in Vietnam. They grew up during an era where uh, they were colonized by the French. And then when communism took over, Vietnam is still one of the rare communist countries on planet Earth today. They fled because people were getting put in prison in re-education camps. One of my uncles was put in prison for seven years. One of, my, one of my other uncles was in the front lines fighting against communism and died, was murdered. There are stories of babies getting killed in front of parents in Vietnam. They don't really like to talk about it, but I know these stories by other means. Think about the continent of Africa. Ask them about hell and judgment and punishment. It doesn't bother them for one second. You know why? Why don't you go and ask them about ethnic cleansing? Why don't you ask them about genocide that has occurred from places like Rwanda and genocide and ethnic cleansing that still happens today in the continent of Africa? If you ask them about hell and the judgment of God, it doesn't bother them for one second, not even a single second. Ask my parents, you know what they say about Western Christianity? They think it's weak and soft. So why does Western Christianity get to determine what is right and wrong about hell and divine judgment? Are we better than the East? Are we better than the continent of Africa? Of course we're not. But somehow... Our ideas of what's right and wrong and divine judgment and hell and punishment and, and all that sort of supersedes it all. But you ask these nations who have gone through torment and torture and baby killings and genocide and ethnic cleansing and all that, and what would they say? It's like, we want judgment. We want justice. Bring it on. See, God's wrath in other continents doesn't bother, except for here, especially in the West. Most people do not see how, especially here in Canada, we don't see how love and anger can go hand in hand. They seem completely opposite. But let's think for a second. Let's think about cancer. And I bring up cancer because I would bet most of my money today, which isn't much, but I would bet most of my money that cancer has touched nearly every single person in this room. You either know someone, heard of someone, or someone going through it right now, right? We're connected somehow to cancer. We can't escape that thing. You know the Bible talks about God being angry when he looks at creation? He sees all the evil, the injustice, the brokenness, the sickness of it all. The Bible actually says it makes him angry. Looking at his creation, messing it all up. Cancer makes him angry as well. Just like it makes us angry. Think about how it's made us angry. Have you seen those bumper stickers now? In our, within our culture here in Canada? Have you seen them? About cancer? What does it say? F cancer. We've gotten to that point, have we not? Think about it. Why have we got, why has that become the cry of the cancer movement? Why? Because we don't know what to do anymore. 
with all our technology, with all the internet, with all the information, with, you know, with the advances in medicine, we still cannot get a hold on cancer. And so we cry out for justice and say, F cancer, because that's it. That's all we got. And yet still, even with cancer going sort of completely out of control, that too many have died and no one's able to slow this down. We want it to be made right. Our culture wants it to be made right. Miroslav Volf, who's a Yale professor and theologian, born and raised in Croatia during the Bosnian War. If you don't know what it is, you need to search it up. It is bad against the Serbs and the Croats, like Croatia. He's a professing Christian coming out of the Bosnian War, one of the most horrific wars. And this is what he says. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. This is what he's saying. He's saying when you have to go through a war and you see the blood and the dead bodies on the streets from babies to mothers to children to animals to all those things, your view yet will change quite vividly, but that's not his main point. Wolf believes that it is the lack of a belief in God, in a God of justice. And what that does, when the West, when we believe there is no God of true justice, that he's just a God of love, not a God of justice, just a God of love, he goes, there's a problem. Because when we see injustice happen, he's saying the normal human reaction for what we do is we put justice where? Into our own hands. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying if you only believe in this, this God of love that loves everyone and is not a God of justice, you then become the God of justice. And you would prefer it that way to take justice and vengeance into your own hands because you're a better judgment of it all. And he's saying that's completely wrong. For those who don't know my story, and you know it through, you know, but you know, it's depicted in movies and stuff, not my soul in particular, but when I was a, between the ages of 12 and 23, I was, in, I was in a gang, I was in prison and all those things. But one of the things you need to know is violence was never ending, never, it never stopped. Over 10 years on the streets in gang violence, it never, never stopped. It was always going back and forth. Revenge could never be satisfied. You know what I mean? It's always a tit for tat. You know what I mean? All the time. It's depicted in movies as well. 
You kill one gangster, they come back, and it goes back and forth. never ends. That's what's happening. If we don't believe in a God of justice or to put all things right, in a God that will make all things right one day, then it actually makes sense that we will be always looking for our version of justice. Always. For those who have grown up in a Christian home, who have grown up here in Abbotsford, many would call you, and probably including myself, a very comfortable Christian. That's all you are to me. And that's all you are to all those looking at you. But comfortable Christians have the opposite effect. Because some of you believe that you were promised heaven and an afterlife, then for some of you, you don't have to worry about justice in the here and now. You don't. Why? Because once you die, you get to heaven. Or as long as I'm safe, then nothing else matters. But the truth is, Christians should be crying out for God's justice to reign on the earth. Should. Christians should care to have God restore and put things in the right order. But it's not something we desperately pray for. If you haven't read the news or watched the news recently, then you know about the Texas elementary shooting. If you haven't watched or read, I'll tell you about it. In Texas, this week, I believe, there was a shooting of 18 children and three adults were killed, I think. Reports have come out that the shooter went into the classroom, a single classroom. So he didn't go into the school and start shooting the entire school, this elementary school. He went into one classroom, went in there, closed the door, and barricaded the door, and then shot every child in that room. He was 18 years old, I believe it was, the shooter. He bought two assault rifles uh, on the day of his 18th birthday. And all the victims were in the same room. My question to you is this, and for those who are listening, when we talk about the God of love and not of a God of justice, my question then to you is this, should we forgive and love the shooter? Should we say things to the shooter? Don't worry about it. Or should, look, should we look at the victims of the eye, look at the victims and the parents who are left behind and look at those parents, look them dead in the eye as they're holding their dead child and say, hey, let's not judge. Or we'll go to the funeral service and grandparents and family members are there Government officials are there and go up and, and they ask you to say something and say, hey, can't we just love everyone? No. We cry for justice. Our emotions are stirred. If we are not angry in these moments for justice, then we should question our hearts. But that's how we sort of the world wants to frame God, right? If God's a God of love, then he should accept everyone. They don't like that he's angry when he looks upon creation and thinks that's wrong. The crazy thing that I've, I've, I've been, I'm trying not to be on social media too much, but on social media, you know what the cry is? 
from all my American friends and whatever, the cry isn't about justice. You know what the cry is about? Guns or no guns. That's the cry. What, you think guns or no guns will bring justice? No. Or somehow all this brings now good balance to the universe if there are no guns. Or we equip everyone with guns evenly. No. If God is not angry at sin, then we should question him as God. Think about um, Thanos from Endgame. I had a particular, very particular image. I don't know if it's going to go. I'm hoping it's going to come up. But there's a picture of Thanos. Can you see it? Oh, yeah. Um, this is, I bring this up because our definition of justice is warped as well. This is an important idea. If you don't remember this scene, this is near the end, obviously, because he's about to die. But right before he's about to die, he sort of looks around. He, he actually makes a turn to look around to see what's, what's happening and what's going to happen. He realizes when he gets to this part, he sort of sits. He knows it's over. And he slowly disintegrates, and everyone in his army disintegrates as well. And we realize that the Avengers and planet Earth and the universe has won. The bad guy dies in the film. We've won. It's a great happy ending. But like I said, our definition of justice is warped. And this is what I mean. It's warped because if we look at that scene or any other scene or any other movie, it was someone just as bad as Thanos. If he died in his sleep rather than in some horrific way, wouldn't that irk us a bit? Like, what? Ah, oh, man, come on, that's not fair. I'm glad he's dead, but let him die in a horrific way the way he killed other people. That's the way he should die and more. So even our justice is completely warped. Let's leave that picture up there because my question now is, as we move on, is then now, what is hell? What is it? So even when justice are one thing, but hell seems to be another. Hell seems to be a place, you know what I mean, with fire and devil and his pitchfork and a red guy and, you know, all of these things, and he's stabbing you into the fire like a smoky. <laughs> and you bleed out cheese and jalapenos because that's my favorite, smoky. <laughs> See, the modern understanding of hell suggests that God gives, okay, this is the modern understanding of hell. That um, God gives a person time, but at the end of their life, if they do not make the right decision or decisions, then their soul sort of falls into space somewhere. Then they cry out to a saving God. They, they cry out, God, save me. And then God responds with saying, too late. You had your chance. Now you need to suffer. That's the modern idea and understanding of hell. But the Bible teaches that, first of all, 
The Bible teaches that sin separates us from God. And it is God, the Bible tells us, that is sort of the source of all love and joy and good and justice that we all not only long for, but the very thing we need. We need his love to complete us. We need his joy to complete our joy. We need his good to complete our good. To not have the presence of God will be hell for you and me. The Bible commonly gives the image of fire to describe hell, okay? It's burning fire, a weeping of gnashing in teeth, that the fire never ends, it never loses its thirst, it just keeps burning. 1st of all, why use this image? Why fire? He could have, Jesus could have used any other imagery, but why this one? First, there was no other imagery that could best describe the worst of hell to the audience of Jesus. He's telling his audience, Jesus is telling his audience, imagine the worst thing. Instead of saying the words, imagine, or the sentence, imagine the worst thing, he says, Hell's like fire. And that automatically gets people to think of the worst thing. And because fire, second fire slowly destroys and devastates and disintegrates anything like sin, he's saying it's slowly making us something else. Sin makes us more like the sin it wants to be. As you slowly become selfish like a fire and it burns a little, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like then selfishness comes into sort of full effect. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31, is one of the big stories that Jesus shares about hell. It's called the rich man in, in Lazarus. And I'll read it for us. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who was... Uh, who feasted tumultuously every day, and at his, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in, in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, then they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, the rich man, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, that is Abraham, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A couple of things I wanted you to notice in that story that Jesus tells. The roles are now reversed. Lazarus is now rich, and the rich man is now poor. But the rich man, for some reason, doesn't seem to notice because the rich man still expects Lazarus to serve him and calls Lazarus, hey, send Lazarus to give, send me water, give me water. Interesting enough, the rich man does not ask to get out of hell. Not once. But then implies that he and his family never received enough information about entering heaven. He never told me how to get there. Some have noted that Lazarus is not named. I mean, Lazarus is named, but the rich man is not. Signifying that the rich man has put all his self-worth into what he possessed. But Lazarus put himself into God, and that's why he was named. If you look at verse 25, in verse 25, Abraham calls the rich man child. This is important. You know why? Because people think God wants people to go to hell. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Because in the Greek, the, this child is the one of the, it's the most endearing words. A word of love, passion for a child. It's longing. God is not happy to have his child in hell so sin like any other sin like I said for those who don't know my story partly being within a gang as well I was a heroin addict for about four years and just like being a heroin addict like any other sin it was all innocent and fun at first like most things in life then I needed a bit more just to have any type of fun. Then I was completely consumed by it. Then it was the only way I knew how to live. And when things were at their worst, I would blame everyone else for my circumstance rather than how I put myself in this circumstance. During the worst of the worst of moments, listen, I did not want salvation. I wanted freedom. What do I mean? I wanted the freedom to do whatever I wanted. I wanted the freedom away from people, from God, just let me do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's what hell becomes. God gives you exactly what you want. And when it unfolds, it becomes hell. So my next question is, wait, hell for all eternity? All of it? The whole thing? That seems unjust. We live on this earth for under 100 years, and now you're telling me I'm going to get punished for 100 million years or more? How is that fair? First, it's not about how long it takes to commit a crime, but rather the weight of the crime. Okay? doesn't matter how long it takes to commit the crime. It's the weight of the crime. Think about it this way. It might take you three seconds to stab someone to death, but should you receive a three-second punishment? Of course not. 
Because the human life that you stabbed and killed has, more, has value and worth, our society even would demand a punishment that is equal or more, would it not? Not about time, but value. But like I said before, but the problem is we're all biased when it comes to sin and when it comes to crime and when it comes to punishment. We rank them. We say stuff like a very famous line in the movie. You probably haven't seen it, but the movie called The Godfather. The Godfather asks another criminal, is it wrong to steal a loaf of bread if my family is starving? We rank all sins and crimes and punishment you know, with certain se- severity. We would even ask for leniency if it was a close family member that we loved. Would we not? But if an enemy did the exact same crime that the loved one did, we would throw the book at them. I bring this up to remind you that we are corrupt, but God is not. When these crimes are committed, we not only commit them against each other, but we ultimately commit them against God. See, lying to each other is vastly, lying to you and I is vastly different than lying to God because God is infinite, God is perfect in every way imaginable. Our sins against Him are infinite. Think about it this way my kids and I fight all the time, today even. We fight about cleaning up, we fight about eating their food, we fight about going to sleep. Most of the time, it goes well. But majority of the time, I would say it doesn't go well. Because there are times and I'll straight up say, no. I'm like, what? Then I go into a complete meltdown. And I'll do things like I'll punish them in certain ways. But I might take toys away or I'll say, no, you can't watch TV for a bit or you can't have friends over. Now, if they did the same thing, so let's say if it, 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 in regards to them not finishing their dinner or them not cleaning up the toys or the mess that they made, if they did that at their friend's house, it would be different. If they did it at the friend's house and you know their friend made them dinner and they didn't finish it, the friend was, oh, whatever. It's okay. You don't have to finish it. Well, if the toys are out there, the friend would say, don't worry, it's my toys. I'll clean it up. So there's a good chance that things will let things go, but because of my relationship with my daughters, because of the weight of us, of them being my daughters and me being their father, their sin against me has more weight against their sin against a friend. Because God is creator of all. And when we sin against him, now we've got issues against him. Lastly, God of love, my question to you is, where do people get the idea that God is a God of love? Where do they get it from? Do they get it from history? Of course not, because history is full of wars and genocide and murder and kings and queens and backstabbing so it's not history do they get it from creation 
Well, according to majority of the of other faiths and religion and in the text that they have, the universe was usually created through violence, not love. There was chaos in the universe. And the gods of the universe, like, you know, decided to, to fight and to bear children and then to throw them out there and let them off and do whatever they want. Well, other religions, other religions more describe a God in the universe and depict those gods as distant and not intimate. So when we talk about, when you and I talk about that God is a God of love, where do we get it from? We get it from, and most people unknowingly get it from, the Bible. Here. That God is a God of love. That's where they get their understanding from. But here's the problem. If you're going to accept this book and that God is a God of love, then you have to accept everything else in it. That he is a good judge. That there is a hell. But that there is a way to salvation. I know most of us think that the Old Testament, that God in the Old Testament is mean and angry and judges people and kills people. In the New Testament, the God is all good and loving. And somehow we're more offended by a judgmental God, but why aren't we offended? Why aren't you and I offended by a forgiving God? We're not offended by that. Truth is, Jesus talks about hell more than the Old Testament combined. Jesus alone. And I'll end here. NYA, there's good news. Because the same book that talks about God's righteous judgment to God being loving, to God being angry, to God being merciful, it also talks about God being gracious. It tells us there's a way and there's a person that makes a way for you and I to have the love, the joy, and the peace that we all desired and more. And there's only one way. And the one way is Jesus. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we give you thanks that you give us a way by your life, death, and resurrection. You give us a way to be with you. That's heaven, not a place, a person. Just like hell, it's not a place, it's a person. It's us. And as things unravel, things get worse, Lord God. And to be away from you, that's hell. To be away from the thing that would completely satisfy and completely give us joy and completely, completely good for us. To be away from those things, that's hell. And it gets progressively worse for all eternity. But Jesus, I thank you that you give us way towards you, Jesus. For those who have not put their faith in you, would they cry out to you today? Would they go tell someone within the prayer team, you know, during this, as the prayer team comes towards the stage to help people to pray, may by the power of your Holy Spirit stir people to come before you in prayer and repent to change.
to say, I no, want, no longer want to live for myself in the hell that I've created for myself. But I come before you, Lord God. And so Jesus, help us to be a people that's not thinking about the idea that we escaped hell, but help us to be the most joyous of all people that we will attain and receive love the one, the thing, that the person that we most desired. That's you, Jesus. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.